Hello, and welcome to another episode of Stories from Sydney, History of the Harbour City. I'm Alistair. And I'm Jed. And every fortnight, one of us tells the other a story from the rich and varied history of Sydney and its surrounds. Last episode, I shared a story. Jed, do you happen to recall what it was about? Absolutely, of course I do. It was about Tommy Burns' huge deal and Jack Johnson, is that right, fighting it out in Rushcutters Bay. All the names are correct, and that was indeed what the story was about. Excellent. So today marks my first foray into hosting our beloved little baby podcast. And so I wanted to pick a topic that would ideally encapsulate the things that excite and intrigue me and signpost the type of content I'll naturally gravitate towards. That's so that listeners who don't want to hear about transport history can just not download the odd numbered episodes. But actually, please don't do that. Alistair, I gave you a clue last episode that my story today would be about a place where journeys in Sydney have been beginning for over 160 years. At the time, you decided it wasn't Central Station, but might be somehow related. Have you had any further revelations since then? No, I haven't. And actually, your introduction to your introduction, where you make it quite clear it's about transport history, confirms all my suspicions that it was about that. (laughs) I had had some really great feedback from Jamie, my wife, who said that... uh, that perhaps I was completely off the mark because in your clue, you mentioned that a journey had started at this place, but you didn't say anything about them ending. And so she decided that you might've been an incredibly cryptic clue and that it was a perhaps a maternity hospital. I said that was giving you way more credit than you deserved. And it turns out I was right. <laughs> also, I think that might be playing to Jamie's inherent bias. Yeah. So uh, I think... I, I re- the more I thought about it, I like my central station guess that I then pulled back, but I would like to reassert it. I think 1860 seems like a good time for the railways to really be taking off and getting started. Um, and so was, I, I'd say something to do with a railway station that could be the precursor of central station or central station itself. Well, it's a very good guess and probably testament to a too easy clue. But before I begin today's story, I'd like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land on which we record our podcast. In my case, that's the Wiradjuri people of the plains west of the Blue Mountains. And in my case, the Nisanan people of the Yuba River watershed in the Sierra Nevada. And the land on which this week's history takes place, the Wongal and Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. Sovereignty was never ceded. Now, there's nothing Sydney siders love more than an elaborate transport scheme. (laughs) And so I figured I'd start with one of the earliest. Is that true? Or is that just that you like elaborate transport No, they <laughs> love them, Alistair. All right, tell me more. You may, have, you may have forgotten after too long out of Sydney, but it's uh, almost the only thing people will talk about, except for property prices. <laughs> yeah, that, that's going to have to come up in an episode soon. <laughs> so I figured I'd start with one of the earliest. The first proposals for a railway in the colony of New South Wales in those heady decades of the first great global rail boom, the 1830s and 1840s. Excellent. I'm so glad you're starting at the start, and I can't wait to hear all about it. Now, to understand the pressing need for better transport in New South Wales in that period, it needs to be understood that up until the 1840s, Sydney was dependent on imports for a huge variety of goods. The Hawkesbury Valley and parts of Western Sydney had become something of a wheat belt to feed the growing colony, but little of value was produced for export, and the manufacturing and extraction industries were very much in their infancy. The exception to this was, of course, the thriving populations of Merino stamping their way across the interior of the land. I'm glad you got to them. <laughs> <laughs> very important. Alas, with no way to bring their wool across the mountains, and with the full extent of the westerly flowing rivers yet to be discovered, which uh, would become a bit of a different issue for Sydney when it was realised that 
the goods didn't need to go through Sydney at all, um, <laughs> those merinos weren't being fully utilised to their maximum potential. Fair enough. In fact, in 1840, the Sydney Herald, which would add mourning to its name the very next year, mm. which I did not know, reported that it costs two or three times as much to bring goods from Bathurst to the coast as it does to ship them to London and back. Wow. Yeah. That, yeah, no, that's, that's pretty damning. They need to do something about that. So you can see that the need for the transport solution of the day was ripe for a burgeoning township like the one in Port Jackson. Now, several flash-in-the-pan schemes appeared in this early period. There was one proposal for a train line from Newcastle to Maitland that would be built with wooden rails to save money. Thankfully, never got off the ground. Okay. <laughs> that sounds like an awful idea. <laughs> yeah, well, I don't, I don't know that that was ever initiated anywhere seriously in the world, so... You need some very good wood. I suspect so. It's something Australia was probably lacking in. Um, another scheme was from Sydney to Goulburn. And for that scheme, they inflated the estimated ridership figures by 50% to make the economic case work and assumed that all the land could be acquired for free because of the increase in land value from having the line running through your property. Okay. I like it. I mean, that sounds like the kind of thing that goes on these days anyway. Just change the numbers a bit. It also came to light at the time that the estimated costing for that uh, project was done without undertaking a survey, which we both know is terrible form. And so the speculated cost was really just a total guess. Nice. This slapdash approach to infrastructure planning started to change in 1849, when in the continuing tradition of public-private partnerships in the great state of New South Wales, the Sydney Railway Company was established. Now, it was a private company made up mainly of wealthy Sydney statesmen and also landowners adjacent to the proposed alignment. Alistair, do you have any ideas where this proposed alignment might have been? Oh, uh, so the first rail line uh, going out of Sydney. Mm. Uh, I have no idea. Um, but for some reason, I've, I've once read something about train. I feel like Goulburn might come into this. Does it come into it or not? It does. It does come into it. That's the only guess I have. <laughs> okay. Well, you're you're right. Uh, there was a, a series of lines, so there's actually a lot of correct answers for that one. It was a bit. It was a bold scheme, and so the Sydney Railway Company proposed lines from Sydney heading to Parramatta, Liverpool, Richmond, and potentially as far as Bathurst and Goulburn. Although that was finance depending. And these were all. Were all of these towns were significant towns at this point. Yeah, absolutely. Varying degrees of significance, but. Yeah, they were all... Uh, I think Goulburn was Australia's first inland town. Okay. Um, and then Bathurst was obviously the first colonial settlement west of the mountains. Mm-hmm. Parramatta obviously existed for 50 years by then. Richmond had been around for maybe 30. I think that was a Macquarie town, if I'm not mistaken. And don't know about Liverpool. No, that, I'll forgive you on that one. Continue. But if it, was on the, if it was on the radar of the Sydney Railway Company, it's safe to say it existed. Yeah. Now, the proposal was contingent on a public guarantee and in the perennial Australian need to keep up with the international Joneses, it was largely underwritten by the colonial government, which guaranteed returns of 5% and assisted in the necessary acquisition of granted land. Nice. I like guaranteed returns. <laughs> yeah. It's a, it, you can't go wrong. Um, although, things did. <laughs> Excellent. Tell me about it. <laughs> so things got underway quickly for the newly founded Sydney Railway Company. And so on July the 3rd, 1850, the first sod was turned by the governor's daughter at Cleveland Paddock, 
which is the between modern day Central Station and Cleveland Street. And I think you alluded to that last week when I gave you a clue, Alistair. You said that you thought that the train line didn't initially start at Central, but slightly to the south. Yes. Which was spot on. Excellent. Haha. <laughs> Alas, the railway company hadn't made good on their deal with the colonial government, and so they couldn't actually commence construction despite the governor's daughter's best effort to get things started. <laughs> she tried. Now, this was to be the first in a string of issues that would plague the project. Now, in writing this, I did try to avoid wholesale quoting delicious tracks of 19th century prose, and I haven't completely succeeded at that goal. Understandable. Please indulge me with just one. Of course. Uh, In December 1850, in a letter to an influential backer in London, the manager of the Sydney Railway Company wrote, and I quote, The undertaking is doubtless a gigantic one for an infant community deficient in capital and labour. It is to be viewed not so much as a matter of profitable speculation, but as a measure necessary almost for enabling Sydney to retain its present position. We shall therefore continue to persevere against all drawbacks and discouragements, and the cooperation of our friends on your side of the water will tend to keep up our spirits and prevent us desponding. Nice. It sounds pretty bleak. I mean, he doesn't kind of pull any punches when it comes to the, the difficulties. No, and I think if you read between the lines there, it's basically saying... We're, uh, we're running out of money. Please send more. <laughs> yeah, can't, can't guarantee you'll get many returns, but we really, really need it. <laughs> and uh, the, the tone will change slightly to one that's a bit more direct as, um, as the project continues. Now, once construction finally commenced, which was about a year after the governor's daughter turned that first sod, it was one hurdle crossed and straight away another ahead. Some significant event happened in 1851 in New South Wales, Alistair, that led to the railway getting put on hold. Do you know what it might have been? I, I think I do. And I th- this one, I think I read somewhere and it made me kind of laugh a bit because I think it might be the gold rush. And I believe that there was some quote that I read where someone was like, I can't believe these uppity kind of working class. They've just left and gone to the gold fields. And don't they know they should be building our railway? That is bang on the money. Um, the discovery of gold out, out in uh, near Orange, actually, a place called Ofa in 1851, and subsequently many other sites out in this direction. Um, and even in California three years earlier in 1848, completely derailed the construction of the new railway by simultaneously drying up both the labor pool and the flow of capital. So it wasn't just the working class, it was the capitalists as well. Ah, uh, okay. Interesting. I, yeah. yeah. Why not blame the working class there? <laughs> So everyone was fleeing with uh, both labor and capital were fleeing for the gold fields and construction ground to a halt as no one was tendering for work on the railway at all. To add insult to injury, the railway company was caught in soaring inflation brought about by the growing wealth of the colony. Caught in a bind with a partially built railway, what do you think the railway company might have done, Alistair? Oh, gee, a partially built railway isn't really very useful for anyone. Um, did they try to send a, a, a train like a steam engine a very short distance down it just to celebrate the part they had done and get kind of people excited in that way that's not not a bad idea but um let's think about life in 2020 what would a failing transport company do in fact what did virgin australia do last week uh demand more money from the government yeah hey, there it is <laughs> Uh, they did the only thing a failing corporation can do and went cap in hand to the government. Excellent. And not just any government. The Sydney Railway Company went straight to the top to the Colonial Secretary in London. 
Oh, just skipped any local government. <laughs> That's right. The director... Well, there was no money left in Sydney. Yeah. They needed to go back to the Londonites. Um, the directors of the company wrote a letter to London asking for 500 railway labourers to be sent out and increased the government guarantee to attract additional investment. Despite the fact that they were three years into a plan to build a short railway and had almost nothing to show for it, they tried to tempt the colonial office with mention that their train line might one day make it as far as Melbourne. Oh, ambitious. It certainly was. Because I don't, I don't believe it's gone in very far yet. It's probably gone a couple hundred metres, but they're thinking Melbourne. Well, they'd actually... They decided to start, despite the governor's daughter turning the sod in Cleveland paddock, they decided to start building the line in the middle um, around uh, Haslam Creek, which is now Lidcombe. And the purpose of that was so that as the line was built, raw materials could be like carted down the built line towards the city. Whereas if they started the city end, they would have had to truck materials from the brick pits and forests west of the city out near um, Lidcombe area. Huh, interesting. So, yeah, the section of track they had was effectively in the middle of nowhere at the time. Just in the middle of a forest and a brick pit. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Whatever they said to the colonial office obviously worked because the 500 men were sent, but not the guaranteed capital, which left the company in the awkward situation of not having enough money to complete the railway, but having 500 workers ready to go. Oh, gosh, this is awful. (laughs) They did continue with construction, but it was at a much slower pace. Now, I need to pause here to touch on what is a very, very sacred and important piece of Australian railway folklore, which is track gauge. Do you know anything about this, Alistair? I do. I believe, I, well, I know the little bit that I think all Australians know in their folklore, which is that uh, all of the states had different gauges. And so if you, when you got to the border between New South Wales and Victoria or whatever other states, you had to get off your train and then walk a little bit and get on another train on the other side of the border so they could take you down to Melbourne. Exactly right. So track gauge is the distance between the two rails. Um, Now, originally New South Wales was going to build its first railway on standard gauge, which is four feet, eight and a half inches, um, which was the advice of the British government at the time. That was the gauge in London and England in general. Um, and that was the main reason for that was so that the rolling stock that was sent from London would just fit seamlessly onto the Australian railway. Now that changed before construction had begun, which I couldn't quite figure out exactly why that had happened, but I suspect it may have been because the chief engineer of the project was an Irishman and he insisted on the merits of what they called Irish standard gauge, which we now know today as five foot three inch broad gauge. So we would have had broad gauge on the Sydney railway if the construction had have been on time, but in September 1852, the colonial secretary advised that broad gauge was out of favour and that they should definitely proceed using standard gauge. But maybe the reason it changed back to standard gauge was because the chief engineer was uh, lost the job and was replaced with a Scottishman who was obviously a standard gauge man. I'm getting lost in all of the different gauges, but we're back to the... I, I like the sound of the one that's just called standard gauge. I think that the, the hint's in the name. That just seems like a, a good gauge. Exactly. And unfortunately, the Victorians were a bit a bit quicker off the mark with their railway construction. And so they proceeded with broad gauge. And as you mentioned earlier, for the next hundred years, that we were left in the predicament where anyone traveling from Sydney to Melbourne had to change trains in Albury because of the break of gauge. That did change in 1962 when the main line from Albury to Melbourne was turned into dual gauge, which means there's actually four tracks 
and oh. trains of both sizes can run on the same line. And it's broad gauge to this day. So wow. next time you're on the Sydney Melbourne XPT, don't forget to raise a toast with your Devonshire tea to dual gauge. Yeah, I, that, I didn't even know that was a technical possibility, but there you go. That would look great on the ground with the four little parallel lines. Tell me more. Back to the Sydney Railway Company, which by 1852 admitted to the government that they were broke and would not be able to complete the railway without substantial government financial aid. Now, the project was deemed to be of sufficient importance to the colony that the royal assent was given and a loan of £150,000 granted. Finally, construction from Cleveland Paddock to Ashfield could begin. The next year, in 1853, the project continued at great pace and shares in the company began to sell again. An enterprising businessman named William Stone even set up a two-story portable pub for the workmen called the Russell Arms that moved along the rail line as sections were completed. That's great. I love that. A portable <laughs> yeah. pub. So it actually, like, they would mount it on the rails and then s- slide it down. I don't know how they moved it, but it was it was wood and canvas. Okay, uh, that makes more sense then. Maybe it was just, maybe they just took it down and put it back up again. Yeah, I think so. Probably moved it, a, you know, a yeah. few kilometers down the line each time. But um, I read an interesting uh, little side anecdote about the Russell Arms, which was they had a sign out the front that said, like, I forget what the price was, but it was a very low price for a um, like a, a bowl of rum. And then when you got in there, it was a specially blown glass. They'd pull out this huge jar for you, but it was like a specially blown glass with a tiny little lip, and they'd just pour the rum into the lip, and you'd only get like a teaspoon worth of rum. <laughs> And people would be so annoyed that they'd been tricked that they'd obviously immediately want to have their friends tricked. Uh, so they sold heaps of rum this way. I'm surprised that that was the reaction. I thought you were going to say they smashed this elaborate glass thing and <laughs> insisted on getting a normal amount of rum. But instead they decided to rip all their friends off. Yeah, both good options. <laughs> all right. Okay. Now the cost of the project continued to blow out, it being estimated at £389,000, which was more than double the estimate from just a year prior. The colonial government was approached for another loan of £150,000, and they granted two-thirds of that. It's just a bottomless pit. You just keep asking. Absolutely. But even with the additional raised capital, it was insufficient. And in December 1854, the Sydney Railway Company was nationalised. Hey. <laughs> I mean, go. all of the money had been coming from the government anyway, right? <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Um, in the act that announced the acquisition, it was noted that the company had failed, quote, by reason of the difficulty of raising the large amounts of capital required for that purpose, and that the government ought to proceed with the same as expediously as the interests of the public require. So thankfully, they had no intention of ending construction, despite the outrageous blowout. And so alongside the Hunter River Rail Company, which was building a similar lineup in between Newcastle and Maitland, the Sydney Railway became the first to be nationalised in the British Empire. Huh, okay, that's interesting. Seems like a fun fact. Well, I suppose the ones being built in England were um, somewhat more successful. Yeah, well, they, yeah, I mean, they were famously all private companies, right? Which is why they would really double up on lines to different places and it was all kind of chaotic and it's still a somewhat confusing system today, whereas the European ones were much more centralized, I think. Yeah, and that's a situation we ended up in, well, except for the obviously the state borders, but in the colony of New South Wales, the first line that was built privately was only a handful of kilometres long. And then, you know, the enormous expansion that would come over the next 50 years was all done once it was nationalised. So probably a good thing that the first project was such a flop. Yeah, there you go. 
So finally, with the purse and the will of the British Empire behind it, the railway from Sydney to Parramatta could proceed with vigour. In a piece of accounting worthy of a contemporary New South Wales state government, the 1849 estimated cost of the railway had been £3,248 a mile. Now, five years later in 1854, this had grown somewhat to £26,000 per mile. (laughs) What happened in between? (laughs) (laughs) all the various anecdotes I've mentioned. But that wasn't half of it because the total cost of the railway would end up being over £40,000 a mile. And for a 14-mile line, this is a cost of over £560,000, which was 12 times over the initial budget. Wow. And it's it's still not a very long line, right? This is just going from Sydney to Parramatta. 14 miles. Yep. The Sydney Morning Herald put it succinctly in March of 1855 as the railway neared completion. They wrote... No one can deny that we have much to learn as well as to unlearn on the subject of colonial (laughs) railways. That's a good zinger. (laughs) In a late round cost-cutting exercise, and this ties into what you already knew, Alistair, Sydney's first terminal station was built in Cleveland Paddock as a glorified wooden shed. A far cry from the impressive edifice erected in 1906 that adds a touch of class to intercity travel to this day. Would you be able to tell me where Cleveland Paddock was? Yeah, so it's on the railway line as it stands today between Central Station and Cleveland Street. Okay. So it's only a couple hundred metres south of Central. Right, so then they demolished that, extended the lines a little bit and built a nice, big, stone, beautiful edifice. Yep, exactly. I thought, yeah, okay, I thought it was the other way around. I thought they'd shortened the lines, that the the station used to be closer to the CBD. Well, there you go, I didn't know. No, because because it was blowing out so badly, there was a lot of alterations made to the line. Thankfully, we didn't go for wooden rails. But there was at one point planned to um, have the line start at Darling Harbour to Terminus, but it was considered to be too expensive. So right. they basically put it beyond the limits of the town at the time. Right, because I was thinking that as well. Even to this day, it's kind of right on the very southern edge of the CBD, right? And so at the time, I imagine it was really out of town. Yeah, So, in August 1855, the first trial run of the journey was successfully conducted, taking 40 minutes to travel from Cleveland Paddock to Parramatta Junction, which is at modern-day Granville. The eventual service journey would obviously take slightly longer than this to allow for intermediate stations at Newtown, Ashfield, Burwood, and Homebush, which are all still in existence today, albeit with a few extra platforms. And that train line, that is still the train line that we have today? Absolutely, yeah. So it's the it's yeah it runs from basically just north of Redfern to Granville, yeah. as the same alignment as it was. But that was this was single track, and now it's most of that line is six tracks. Right. Okay. So you can have express uh, trains at the same time as all stops trains and some other train going past them all. Yeah. Exactly. The worst of the delays behind them. It was finally time to focus on the project's eventual success. So this story does have a happy ending. Yeah, are we gonna are we gonna get to Bathurst? Because that's I'm worried about these merino sheep that are taking so much money to. <laughs> we are not getting to Bathurst today. Oh gosh, <laughs> we're only getting as far as Granville, which took six years. So you know. Yeah, it's gonna take an. You have to go over the mountains <laughs> next. If we if we got six years to travel fourteen miles <laughs> on relatively uh, flat quick land, maths would mean we must have. Be about arriving in Bathurst any day now. (laughs) Oh, gosh. The first train left Cleveland Paddock at 11.20am, which was only 20 minutes late, not bad by city rail standards. (laughs) (laughs) On September 26, 1855, accompanied by a 21-gun salute and Governor Denison dressed in full Windsor uniform, 
which is normally a special outfit for male Windsors and other courtiers at Windsor Castle. So I'm, I'm not sure who approved this bending of protocol, <laughs> but it is definitely a testament to the grandeur of the event. Yeah, you've got to love the gun salutes and the uniforms. Yeah. <laughs> and that, Alistair, is the story of the first railway in Sydney. And as you pointed out, it is one that is still very much in use today. Sounds like part one of a much longer series. Well, yeah, I, I mean, I did, I did consider the option of just doing a, a different section of the railway every fortnight. Well, I really enjoyed it. I particularly like that pub that was moved every time and the elaborate <laughs> trick with the rum. They were obviously still in the rum days back then. I got lost in the gauges, to be perfectly honest. In the track gauge? I, I, yeah, I like, yeah. It, I got that because then the Irish guy came and then it is the So was the Irish gauge different from the broad gauge? No. So, well, <clears throat> there's basically, um, so standard gauge is four feet, eight and a half inches, which is, I think, 101,435 mil. Now, in modern parlance, anything narrower than that is called narrow gauge and anything broader than that is called broad gauge. Okay. So because we've ended up with this system where there's sort of a standard, that's a handy benchmark. There's also a, your sort of, st- what you might call your standard broad gauge. Yes. Which is just called broad gauge, and which that- is five foot three inches, which is also called Irish standard gauge. So they all have heaps okay. of names. They have different names. Because that broad gauge is the one that was used on like, the Great Western Railroad in England, right? I don't know. I know that India is all broad gauge. It's the world's biggest broad gauge rail network. Okay. It's basically a trade-off between um, the the benefits of going narrow are tighter turning circles predominantly, okay. and it's cheaper. Right. And going wider, you have more stability. You can yeah. have larger vehicles, but you have to have wider turning circles and it's more costly. And it's expensive. Right? Yeah. So it so- sort of depends on the purpose Um and I guess like how much money someone had when they first started, because once you started, you're kind of stuck with whatever gauge you right. originally built. Right. But yeah, I believe that they had both in England at, at that time in the 1800s. Oh, absolutely. They probably had loads. You know, it'd be safe to say they probably had five different gauges. Right. Okay. Do we have, do we have any photos of a hotel that was moved? There is no photos of the hotel that moved. In fact, there's scant information about it. But it does seem like the license for it eventually ended up at a pub in Granville and also a pub in Railway Square. <laughs> Funnily enough, one at each end of the line. Excellent. Yeah, thank you very much for that story. I, I really, really enjoyed it. I'm looking forward to hearing more about the railways and how they eventually get to those sheep to get them back to Sydney. I, I hadn't thought about the fact that this is quite a long time after the founding of Sydney and I believe that those sheep were pretty important to the economy and it really seems to have taken a very long time to get a easy way to transport the wool back to the coast. Yeah, absolutely. This is at this point in time and you know as this story makes fairly apparent Sydney was not um flush with cash and I haven't read too far beyond this point in the story but I have a sneaking suspicion that maybe all this gold mining wealth might um help facilitate something of an infrastructure boom. Yeah, it's also impetus to get over the mountains as well, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. And I do know from the date of establishment of stations west of the mountains that they definitely did not muck around to the degree that they did with this first 14 miles. <laughs> they got their act together. Subsequently. All right. Well, thanks very much for that, Jed. I really enjoyed the story. Well, you're very welcome. And what exciting content can I look forward to in a fortnight's time? 
Well, Jed, I've prepared a cryptic clue for you about my episode in a fortnight. And the clue runs something like this. Uh, in 1972, nearly 200 years after these notebooks were written, they were uncovered in the School of Oriental and African Studies at the University of London. And since then, they've been a source of interest and a great study for many people. Do you have any idea who might have written them and what they might be about? No. Um, 1772. Sorry, 19, 1972, they were, they were found. But they were written 200 years earlier, you said. Roughly, yeah. So, I mean, they were written oh, okay. at the very start of the colony. Right. Um, so, they ended up in London. I'm wondering if it might be... I know Benelong went back to London with Tench, I think, very early on. And maybe his journals were something that would have been overlooked and turn up later. I feel like most of your major colonial figures, their diaries were probably uh, kept in fairly good order and weren't prone to going missing. All right. Well, I, I like where you're going with that. Uh, Tench definitely comes into the story. I'll give you a couple of weeks to think more about the clue and see if anything else comes up, see if any of our listeners have some ideas. I'm sure they will. And yeah, I'll, <laughs> I'll, tell, you more, I'll tell you more about it. I'm looking forward to it. Excellent. Me too. Um, and finally, a, a difficult clue that stumped one of us. <laughs> yes. Well, thanks for listening, everyone. We hope you enjoyed this week's episode of Stories from Sydney, History of the Harbour City, as much as we enjoyed making it. If you've got any questions, comments, complaints, or you'd like to know more about anything you heard on our podcast, you can reach us through our Facebook page, Stories from Sydney, or by email, storiesfromsydney at gmail.com. If you have a suggestion for a story that you think we will all enjoy, it is best to email us, but please do make sure to indicate if the suggestion is for Jed or for Alistair in the subject line so the other one knows not to read it and we can have a fresh and surprising story each episode like this one was for me today. And if you enjoyed this podcast and would like to support us, the best thing you can do is leave us a rating and a review wherever you found it. Please also feel free to share the love with your friends and family and pass this on to anyone who you think might also gain some modicum of pleasure from listening. And as a final special treat this week, we will leave you with the sound of the New South Wales Transport Institute Band performing the Sydney Railway Waltz, composed by W.H. Paling in 1855 and played at the opening of Sydney's first railway, on September 26, 165 years ago. Until next time.